come to our time of communion and I uh, recently took some students to Ozark Christian College over in Joplin and we got to communicate about the gospel and uh, a lot of the messages came from texts from uh, Romans which is a very applicable chapter and book to today the diversity of the church and uh, the different struggles that are still the same Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is not a condemnation, it's just the truth that when sin enters, so does death. Where there is sin, there will be death. And uh, Paul was very clear when he wrote to communicate that hope is not found in uh, the rules we follow. They're not follow, or they're not, it's not hope in... uh, any specific gathering, building, anything that we can control. Because he wrote about God, how in Romans 5, it said, while we were still sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us. While we were still sinners. So it's not the perfect people we can be, like it's possible, you know. Uh, It's not about the great accomplishments we will ever accomplish and do. It was just the fact that God loved us and he didn't want to leave us in our sin. He didn't want us to perish. He wanted to forgive us. In Romans 8, probably one of the most powerful moments that he ever wrote was, so there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power that comes from the living spirit has freed you from the power of sin, which leads to death. The law of Moses could not save because of the weakness of our sin. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body, in human form, like us sinners. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And it's interesting when we think about it because this is so unlike the world. The world says if you make a mistake, you pay for it, you fix it, you must make amends. And God says, you have sinned. There is nothing you can do to fix it. So I will fix it for you. And that is, uh, it's so hard to comprehend. And and it's so unlike anything we've probably ever known. But that's the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. And even the grace he offers beyond that. Forgiveness alone, he offers eternal life through him. But none of that was possible without Jesus coming and being a sacrifice for our sins. So at this time of communion, when we we partake in the bread and the juice around the room, as much as he was here to save the world, God also sent him to save each and every one of us because he loves us individually. He cares for us. He desires us because while we were still sinners, 
while we were still sinners, not that we were saints, maybe because we may never be saints, because God even loves us as sinners, and he knows, he knows we needed Jesus. And that's, a, and that's heartbreaking, that we can never fix ourselves. It's a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to partake. It's a reason to remember. So as we pray and we take some time, take the juice and remember God's love for us through Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you're good. God, you are... Uh, you didn't have to leave us in sin. You didn't, you didn't have to send Jesus. You, but you did because of your great love. God, we are so thankful and we are so in awe and that is the reason why we worship, that is the reason why we congregate, that is the reason why we come together to break bread together. God, uh, thank you so much for your great love for us that you did not leave us in our sin. Lord, I ask that you uh, bless this time as we reflect on what Jesus means to each and every one of us, that sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God, that paid for our sins. Lord, we, we worship you and we honor you today. In your son's name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, open to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, and if you have your, if you have you version, you can follow along on there as well. And while you're getting to Acts chapter 15, uh, I'm going to say something that you've heard me say before, and when I say it, you're probably going to be like, you say that all the time. Acts chapter 15 is a very important part of the book of Acts. Now, you might be thinking, you, you say that about every chapter of the book of Acts, and it's all important, but like, you know, there's these roadmaps in the book of Acts. There's these different events, these different things that happen that, you know, are big events and things that change, you know, what happens next. And, you know, it's the beginning of the, the apostles taking the gospel out, continuing the work that, that Christ called them to. And then you see Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes and you start to see the church grow. And, you know, we have the instance with Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10 and the, the Gentiles are now included in the gospel message. And it's not just for the Jews, it's for everybody. And these are all big things. These are all important things. Acts 15 is important because if this discussion that is held in Acts 15 is not handled properly, this could split the church. And actually, it could push out half of the church. 
That's an important thing. And not only is it an important thing for the church, it's important for Paul because we know what Paul's ministry is. We know who Paul is called to go to. And if the discussion we're going to have in this text is to be you know, believed, then that affects Paul's ministry greatly. And so Acts 15 is a very important passage for not just this morning, but as we continue through the book of Acts and what Paul is called to do and how the church is called to share the gospel with not just the Jews, but with the Gentiles as well. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 and we're going to look at the first, uh, we're going to look at 35 verses, but we're going to start in the first five verses. And this is what it says. Says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so in these first five verses, we get the setting for what's going to happen in this chapter. So these people come to Antioch and they start teaching that in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And this presents a big problem to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not circumcised and they're being told, hey, if you are not circumcised, you are not saved. This is important, and this brings Paul and Barnabas into a sharp debate with them, because if this is the case, if they have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses to, uh, have, or to be a believer, then Acts chapter 10 goes out the window. Acts chapter 13 goes out the window. All these times that they've preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and these Gentiles have you know, given their life to Christ, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter because you haven't been circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas, they don't agree with this. And uh, the church at Antioch doesn't agree with this. And so they say, all right, here's what we need you to do. We are going to send you to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and the elders about this issue because this issue is important. And so they send them out. And as they're going, they travel through Phoenicia and Samaria. It's on the way to Jerusalem. And on their way, they stop at these places and they tell people what has happened. You know, Paul and Barnabas, hey, guess what? We've gone here and we've gone here and we've gone here. And the Gentiles have believed. They have, you know, put their faith in, in Christ and, and they believe. And it says that the people, you know, were, were glad about this. It says the believers were very glad about what had happened and they finally they get to jerusalem they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything god had done through them 
But then at the end of this little section here, we see this problem again. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised. How sad is it that all these you know, Gentiles have put their faith in Christ. They've, you know, they believe in him. And yet there's these believers who are Jews, who are part of the Pharisees, who are still, nope, they're not following the law of Moses. Doesn't count. Unless they're circumcised, doesn't count. What's interesting here to note, I think it's important to mention, uh, we see that they're going to meet with the apostles and the elders and the leaders of the church. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 is a very important text that we're going to look at a little bit this morning. And Galatians chapter 2 seems to be talking about the same event that we have going on here. There's two kind of schools of thought. It's either uh, Acts chapter 11 where Peter is having to defend again uh, why he was eating with Gentiles. And then, or it's Acts 15. It's likely due to dating that this is uh, Acts 15 that he talks about in Galatians 2. But this is what he says in Galatians 2 to Paul. He says, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So obviously the situation means a great deal to Paul because he wants to know, hey, if I'm supposed to be telling people this thing that I don't believe, am I running my race in vain or, or am I going to be running my race in vain? Because what's the point in me telling people, you know, grace is there for the Gentiles if I have to tell them they have to do works as well, that they have to do this thing to become a believer along with what they've already done? And so we see uh, Galatians 2 is going to be important as we look at Acts 15 this morning. But here's the thing I want to focus on in these first five verses. You have the beginning of the passage, and he's talking about you have to be circumcised. The end of these five verses, you have to be circumcised. But I love the part in the middle where Paul and Barnabas are going through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they're telling people the good things that have happened. I love this because Paul is not going to let what has already happened or what's going on with this debate in the church, he's not going to let that stop him from sharing what God is doing. He rejoices in what he's doing. He's celebrating what God is doing. And that's something I want us to think about this morning. We need to celebrate the good even in the midst of the bad. We need to celebrate the good things that God is doing in the midst of the bad. And I think that's something we struggle with, right? Because when we're in the middle of a storm, when something is happening around us, maybe you have a conflict at work, maybe you have a conflict in your family, maybe you have something that is going on, and, and to find something to praise God about, to celebrate God about, is difficult, and this was a huge thing that we're going to talk about in, in this discussion with the Gentiles and, and what they need to do to be saved. But in the midst of this, Paul's saying, I'm not going to let that keep me from celebrating what God is doing in the life of those people. And we need to make sure that we are finding ways to celebrate what God is doing in our lives, even in the midst of the trials. I like what it says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, 
Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my string instruments. No matter what is going on in your life, if things seem like, oh, it's just too much, there are still reasons to praise God. There's still reasons to celebrate what God is doing in your life. Maybe it's how you handle those things. Maybe you handle those trials differently than you used to. Right? Like maybe you handle those trials differently because before I was a believer, I didn't celebrate these things. I didn't celebrate how I handled those things. I would get quick tempered or, or maybe I would say things without thinking. Maybe you handle things differently now as a believer. And so look for things to celebrate God even in the midst of the trials. And so we, we continue on here in Acts 15, looking at verse 6. And verse 6 and following says this, The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in our agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so we get this start out here of the apostles addressing the situation. The apostles and, and uh, James are going to address the audience here. And we start out with Peter, and Peter starts out by reminding them, uh, you know, hey, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message, the gospel, or the message of the gospel and believe. This has been foretold. This has been a thing that Scripture tells us was going to happen. Someday the gospel would move past just the Jews into the Gentile. It would be inclusive for everybody. It wouldn't just be for the Jews. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 tells us, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49.22 says, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. 
the gospel was going to go to more than just the Jews. It was going to be for everybody. It wasn't just going to be for the certain people anymore. It was going to be for all people. And Peter reminds us, hey, this happened. He showed, you know, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. This is calling back to Acts chapter 10 and, and Peter's, uh, his story with Cornelius and how Cornelius's family. Remember, Peter was struggling with this idea of, you know, I'm not supposed to eat with them. I'm not supposed to live life with them because they don't follow the law. And so I can't be around them. He was struggling with this. And God kept reminding him, listen, don't call them unclean. Don't say that they are not worthy. You need to do life with them. And he tells them this. And they received the Holy Spirit just as the Jews did. It says, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Same way he says in verse 11, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Through the same means that the Jews became believers, the Gentiles had the same moments, the, the same moments of putting their faith in him, the same moments of having uh, their hearts cleansed, purified by God. And he says this in verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? By you saying this, by you telling them what they have to do, this work that they have to do to be circumcised, you are putting a yoke around their neck trying to follow the law that you yourself cannot follow. This law that you are pushing, you can't even hold to that law. So why are you trying to test God by putting a yoke on their neck? So what is a yoke? Well, I think we have a picture up there. Yoke, we often think of the yoke put on an oxen. Uh, this yoke here would be put on two oxen, so it would help pull a plow, or when they're uh, tilling the land, they would use the, the yoke of the oxen. Some of you probably can explain that better than me, maybe. But... The problem is we were putting a, you know, Peter says, we're putting a yoke on the neck of, of these people uh, by using the law that you can't even hold on to. You can't even follow. You can't even do what the law tells you to do. So why are you going to do this to them? We then see it says that Barnabas and Paul continued to uh, talk about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. And then James uh, speaks up and says, you know, listen, Simon described to us how God first intervened, and, and this is what the prophets tell us. This comes from Amos uh, 9, 11 through 12. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. And so this is the point that, they, that all of them make. Here's what it is. He says, we can't make them do this. We can't tell them to be circumcised because that doesn't save them. Circumcising these Gentiles does not save them. What it, all you're doing is adding a work of the law onto their necks that, that you can't follow yourself. You know, you're going to point out this one area of the law. Let's count all the ways that you have failed the law. And herein lies the problem, the yoke of the law. There's a lot to say about this, and I want to try to keep it brief, but Peter tells him, listen, you guys, you fail according to the law. You're going to sit there and you're going to tell them what they need to do, but you yourselves fall according to the law. 
As legalistic as the Jewish leaders were, they could never live up to the law that they themselves were telling people that they had to follow. And what's so ironic about this is we read that Peter tells them this, even Peter himself knew that he could not hold himself up to the law, and we actually see Peter have a brief moment of weakness in a similar situation to what we see now, struggle with the law. Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people believe that it's talking about Acts chapter 15. Now, whether you believe it's talking about Acts chapter 15 or Acts chapter 11, Galatians chapter 2, verses 10 and, or 11 and following are kind of hard to read. And, and this is what it says in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's likely that Galatians 2 is talking about Acts chapter 15, and if that is truly the case, how sad is it that after this council meeting, where Peter stands before all of these people and says, you are putting the yoke of the law, do not test God by putting the yoke of the law on these Gentiles, we see that Paul has to rebuke him because he does the thing he tells them not to do. Peter has this moment where he says, let's not test God, but then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, he stands up, or, Peter has, or Paul has to call out Peter because he's scared. He's scared of the circumcised believers. He's scared of you know, what they may say or what they may do. It doesn't tell us exactly what he's afraid of. We just see he's afraid. And he stops spending time with the Gentiles. He stops being around the people that God tells him they are to be included. They push them away. And not only does he do this thing, it says that his hypocrisy leads even Barnabas astray. And think about this. Barnabas has been with Paul on these missionary journeys, preaching to the Gentiles. And by the time we get to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, even Barnabas has led astray and isn't acting the way he should with the Gentiles. This law that they are preaching and telling people that they have to follow, they can't follow it themselves. And this is the problem with the law. And I, I love how Paul talks about the law. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, he says this, what shall, or what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. 
So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do or for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is a sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So there's a lot that you can say about Paul's statement here on the law. And, and you know, he, he clarifies for us the law is not bad. The law is not bad. The law was not evil. The law was not intended to be a bad thing. The law was intended to be a guide for God's people. The law in itself was not bad. Here's the problem. The law is spiritual. I am unspiritual, is what Paul is saying. And so all these laws that he sees, when he reads these laws, when he sees these laws, because of his human nature, because of the temptation that Satan puts on him, these things that are law become temptations for him to sin. The law is not bad. The law isn't evil, but the things that come out of it, in, in his case, because he is a regular human being, causes sin in him. And that is the problem of the law. The law opens up the door for temptation, and it shuts the door on hope. It shuts the door on hope because if it is the law that saves and you have to follow everything the law says in order to be saved, then there's nothing you can do because no matter how many times you try to do the right thing, you are going to fall short according to the law. And every time you fall short, if that's what saves you, you're never going to be perfect, so you're always going to break the law. And Paul says this, here, who's going to save me? I'm a wretched man because I constantly break the law. I constantly do the things that I don't want to do. I have these things that I want to do. I want to do the right thing. I want to do good. I want to make sure that I'm living the way I'm supposed to. But every single time I do, I fall, I stumble, I trip up. And if the law is what saves me, I am in trouble. Here's the good news, though. Christ fixed this problem so that the law is no longer what's, what saves people. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be in sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fully met in us who does not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Galatians 5.1 tells us, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Colossians 2, 14 through 17 tells us, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All of these tell us that the law is not what saves us. What saves us is Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That is what saves us. It's no longer the law. And so they're telling him, listen, circumcision doesn't save them because that is a requirement of the law. And that's not what is going to save these Gentiles. No, it is, as Peter says, the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's not the law. Why is this important? Because, you know, you might be thinking, well, I don't think we struggle with this issue of you have to be circumcised to be saved in our church today. At least I've not heard that discussion going around any time lately. But here's the sad truth. We may not have this issue today, but that doesn't mean we don't have a problem with legalism. It doesn't mean we don't have a problem with legalism. And here's the the point I want to make this morning. We must be careful with our standards. We must be careful with our standards. And uh, when I say that, I mean our standards should line up with that of, you know, what we're taught by Christ, right? Like that should be our standard. But yet our problem is is we kind of have our own standards, right? Like our own man-made standards that we tend to place on other people. You have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to believe a certain political view one way or the other. You have to have certain opinions. You have to do this and you have to do that if you want to be saved. You have to be from a certain part of the neighborhood. You have to have a certain amount of income. You have to do these things if you want to be saved. We struggle with things like this. You have to do this or that or this or that. And our standards, they don't line up with Scripture. We forget sometimes the grace of God that's been shown to us when we should be showing that same grace to other people. In his article, Three Ways Christians Turn People Off from the Church, Vince Antonucci, he's a pastor at a church in Las Vegas, shares a couple of stories I thought these were really good, and I just wanted to share these. The first story is this. It said, Ted used to be the sound guy for the Grateful Dead. He had never gone to church and had no interest in God. His sister, a Christian who lives in a different state, begged him to check out our church. One day, he finally showed up. 
Eventually, he volunteered to help run sound, and at our pre-service production meeting one morning, he announced to everyone in our, in our meeting that he didn't believe anything that our church taught. I asked, well, why did you continue to attend? And he got choked up, and he said this, I've never felt love like this before. Ted continued coming to our church, and four months later, he accepted Jesus, who is the truth. As I write this, it's 10 months after Ted first showed up, and he is currently overseas on a mission trip where he's loving people. Hopefully, they'll come to know the truth so that they can be set free. The point that he makes in this article when talking about that is we're told that when we lead, we need to lead with two things. We need to lead with truth, and we need to lead with love. And the problem is, is too often, we lead with only one and not the other when it's calling for both. And he said, in this case, so many people try to lead with truth but never show any love. And when you do that, people don't want to hear the good news from somebody who is less than happy about sharing it. Here's the second story he shares. He says, Sandy didn't grow up in a Christian, or a Christian home, but she always believed that there must be a God, and she wanted to know him. As a child and young adult, she tried going to several churches, but never went back to any of them a second time. Every church told her what she should and shouldn't be doing. Several churches asked her to dress more appropriately on her next visit, and of course, there would be no next time. She felt judged and incapable of living by the church's requirements. Sandy moved to Las Vegas and became a Britney Spears impersonator, dancing provocatively in a salacious costume at a casino on the strip. Then one day she showed up at our church. Yes, she was dressed inappropriately, but we chose to ignore that. We felt our role was to point her to Jesus, not to point out what she was doing wrong in her life. We can expect non-Christians, or we can't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. In fact, without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, people can't live the way God wants them to. Sandy thanked our church family for keeping it positive and came back a second time. In fact, she kept coming until she came to faith. And then she changed everything. She dressed differently, she broke up with her boyfriend, and she quit her job. Why did she start behaving? Because she now believed, and God had prompted and helped her to make those changes in her life. Please don't misconstrue what I'm saying this morning. I'm not standing up here and saying, hey, we need to endorse sin. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is that sometimes we forget our own sin and we forget our own shortcomings and our own issues and we start asking people that they do this or that just to try to fit in with us and we wonder why people don't want to be a part of the church. They don't feel like they can enter in without being judged. So, what do we need to do instead? Well, James answers this question kind of. He says in verse 20, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter to the apostles and elders 
your brothers and to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicily. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain, or you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending time with their, or some time there, they went off by, or with the believers uh, with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. And so we see James say, instead of telling them that they have to be circumcised because we don't believe they need to be to believe, what we should do then is write them a letter to encourage them to abstain from these three things. Foods, or food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, and meat, strangled, or meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, I think part of the reason they wrote this letter wasn't a, uh, hey, you should just watch out for the, I think part of it was probably we got to appease these Jews somehow, let's tell them to abstain from this so at least uh, it looks like it's not just a completely abandoning everything. But I think that there was some, you know, these were all part of the Jewish ceremonial laws, but I think that there was some moral issues here I mean, these were issues that, you know, they're writing this letter to tell them, hey, you really should avoid these things. For example, don't eat food polluted by idols. This was something that the Gentiles struggled with. This was something that they would often do. Matter of fact, a lot of times Gentiles would hold banquets in uh, the temples of false deities. And so this was a big issue. And Paul would address uh, the church on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do, they not, or do, those, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of the demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he's telling them, don't do this thing. Like, this is a horrible thing. If you partake in this, you are participating, you know, with demons, and you don't want to do that. So avoid those things. What else from this list? Well, sexual immorality. 
Gentiles struggled with fornication. As a matter of fact, it was pretty much an accepted practice among the Gentiles to do whatever sexually immoral things they chose to do. Again, Christians shouldn't participate in these things. Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12-18. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach, or the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do, or do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from the sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So this is important because James isn't telling them here that these are requirements for salvation. Instead, these are things that you would do well as a follower to avoid. You should avoid these things because these things are bad. I don't see this as an instance of them you know, rebuking the Gentiles. What I see this as is an instance of accountability rather than an issue of hindrance. And this is what we need Today, accountability is important, and that's the point I want to make in this, this morning, is that instead of hindrance, accountability. Instead of hindrance, accountability. Instead of hindering people from coming to know Jesus, instead of hindering people by putting on them this and this and this and this and this, and if you do all of these things, then maybe you can be saved. Instead of hindering people, we should keep people accountable. I like how Randy Alcorn talks about this, and he talks about this in regards to an accountability partner. But he says, being accountable, you're able to receive, or people are able to perceive what you can't see when blind spots and weaknesses block your vision. Such a person serves as a tool in God's hand to promote spiritual growth, and he or she watches out for your best interest. We are called to be accountable as believers we are called to be accountable with our brothers and sisters in Christ. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Proverbs 27.17 tells us, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We should be accountable with one another. I will say this. Remember, when we're dealing with somebody who is a new believer, grace is definitely a thing that we should show. Think about somebody who is coming out of something for the first time in their life and they're trying to figure out, what do I do next? A little bit of grace is important, but we are called to be accountable with one another as believers. But here's the thing. When we are accountable, we need to remember to be accountable with love. We need to be accountable with love. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 1 John 3.18 tells us, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. 
Matthew 7, 3, 5 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And, you know, I think I include that because, you know, part of loving one another people when you keep one another accountable is remembering that if you're going to call somebody out for doing something while you are struggling mightily in that issue, it could be a little difficult. But more so than just this, instead of just accountability and calling out one another's sins and confessing sins, it's also encouraging one another. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. First Peter 4.8-10 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So look at what they do at the, in, in chapter 15. It says that the people read the message and they were glad for its encouraging message. They were glad. They were encouraged by it. And, and look what they do in verse 32. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. We are called to be accountable with one another, and that means sometimes we have to confess to one another what's going on in our lives, but we also need to make sure we do it with love, and we also need to remember to encourage one another, to build one another up, to teach one another, to train one another in doing what is right. We do it to encourage one another. Let us not be so quick to hinder people from coming to know Jesus, but let us be accountable with one another. Here's the good news. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. Romans 5.6-8, through 8, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, 22 and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leaps, or leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin of death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason I share these verses is for this. The gospel is for everyone and salvation is for everyone. It is granted to us not based off what standards we try to tell people you have to look a certain way, you have to act a certain way, you have to do certain things. That is not what saves people. The law does not save people. Jesus dying on the cross saves people. This morning it is grace through faith that saves us. It's faith in Jesus Christ based on what he did for us on the cross. So let us not hinder others from coming to the good news. Instead, we keep one another accountable. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, it's on our t-shirts, we've seen it on flyers, 
I love our message, come as you are, leave changed. Come as you are, leave changed. We invite people to come as they are, sin and all, flaw and all, mistakes and all, because we are all sinners who have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, and every single one of us in this room are broken and flawed, and every single one of us in this room needs grace. And so here's the truth. If we all are broken and sinful, and we all are in need of grace, then the people outside of this place are sinful and broken and in need of grace just as we are. And so, I am so thankful that we have that message, come as you are, leave changed. If we're going to have a standard, let the standard be the standard that Christ has set for us. And let's be accountable with one another and hold one another up, encourage one another, teach one another, train one another in what Christ says is good and right and what we should be doing. And maybe this morning you are here and you are being tied down by these laws. Man, Christ died to break that. Christ died to, you know, you're not saved by the law. You're saved by Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made in the past. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter, you know, it, it, Christ died for that. And so maybe this morning you need to let go of those things that you've been holding on in your past and let those go and lay those down at the cross. Maybe this morning you just need to spend some time in prayer talking with God, letting some stuff go. If that's the case, I'd love to pray with you. Uh, Cody would love to pray with you. I know one of the elders would love to pray with you. But let us go from here this morning, not hindering people from hearing the gospel, but keeping one another accountable. This morning, if you have a decision to make or you need to spend some in prayer, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.